Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And in this episode, we are looking at the Normandy landings. D-Day, Operation Overlord. It took place 77 years ago this week and saw 150,000 Allied troops land across five beaches on France's Normandy coast. But it turns out that D-Day might not have happened at all if it wasn't for the invention of one very specific new technology, the resonant cavity magnetron, which enabled the use of microwave radar. When you think of a technology that won us the war, you'll think of atomic bombs or perhaps the Colossus supercomputer over at Bletchley. But the fantastic historian Norm Fine takes us through the months before D-Day and how this new form of radar annihilated the U-boat threat, took out the war-making capacity and the air power capacity of Germany and really did allow D-Day to take place. So here he is, Norm Fine on D-Day, the untold route to victory. Hi, Norm. Welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? Well, James, thank you. Good. Where are you in the world? I'm in uh, Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, which is a beautiful, beautiful spot to be. We love it here and don't ever want to leave. I actually was born in Boston, grew up in Boston, went went to school in New Hampshire at Dartmouth and loved loved all that. But where where we want to be now. You're an East Coast guy through and through. Yes. Yes, I am. Am I right in thinking that you used to work for NASA as well? Our little company that we started, we did work for NASA, yes, on that first moonshot. Oh, wow. So it was your company that engineered some of the technologies that allowed us to get those pictures back from the moon. Right, right, right. We built six special purpose units, which they put at the tracking stations around the globe to capture those images live. Those are those ghostly, funny looking images, not the color that was done later with their cameras, but these were the first live pictures from the moon, walking down the stairs and stepping onto the moon. And I never realized how how kind of incredible it was until that last anniversary. And they showed images of people thronged in different squares in in Africa and, and Asia, watching these pictures 
first time ever. And that made me feel kind of good, proud. I mean, it's no small feat, is it, Norm? I mean, goodness me, they are some of the most iconic images in the history of the world. Amazing. Well, the reason why I mention this is because you're a man with a very, very long history of working in the most intricate technical electronic details. And it's through that line of work that you stumbled across quite a fascinating part of history yourself. A piece of history that's really relevant this week, because it is this week that we are commemorating the anniversary of Operation Overlord, D-Day. The battle began on June 6th, when some 156,000 Allied soldiers landed on those five beaches along that 50-mile stretch of heavily fortified coast. And then, of course made their way inland. This invasion was one of the largest amphibious military assaults in history. However, we know how it turns out, but it may not have turned out as well as it did. It may not have even taken place if it wasn't for one piece of technological advanced geniusness that you stumbled across in your own research. Tell us about it, Norm. Right. An associate and I, we signed on with Raytheon Company to help them design a brand new display for air traffic controllers. It's a new generation. They wanted to get rid of all the old vacuum tubes and use all solid state devices. And so we learned a new technology there. And when we were through with that, it was a big contract for the Federal Aviation Agency here in the States. And when we got through with that, we started a little company to make special purpose displays, high precision, high resolution displays. And a lot of the work that we were starting to get engaged in was for the Naval Research Lab and for the Air Force and for companies that were contracted with the Air Force. For This was during the Cold War, so they were building equipment for reconnaissance using radar, using infrared, using whatever input devices they could give them the information they wanted. I just got interested in radar. I didn't know a whole lot about it. And one of the problems we had was that we were working with state-of-the-art designs and there was no real books or design guides for us. So I searched the, the literature and I found a volume, of a 10-volume set, I think it was, called the Rad Lab Series, Radiation Lab Series, published by MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, right after the war to publish and make them available to the world a lot of the things that they worked on, a lot of the new developments that they worked on during the war. They had a lab there that was set up after the British sent a mission over, you were already at war, and a mission called the Tizard Mission, Sir Henry Tizard, one of the top scientists in England, came here with some specialists and simply showed us all the, and this was a difficult thing to do, and it wasn't, some people were unhappy about that in Britain, but showed us you, you, were, you were tied up in the war, you had so much on your hands and so little resources to do it with, and only time to stick with what you knew. So they came here and they showed us some really marvelous new technologies. To They, they had set up a series of meetings with our some of our top physicists around the country and with our top military leaders. 
And from that, this invention that two British physicists had made in November of 1939, you're already at war, and they invented a little gadget that was at the heart of the new radars. All the developed nations had radar, but it was primitive, huge antennas as big as the side of a barn, low frequency, couldn't see a lot of detail, but, and all the radar scientists around the world knew that they had to go up in frequency to see more detail and to make the equipment smaller. So this was fine as it was for fixed defensive installations and used it to great advantage in Britain early on with that chain home system of uh, radar installations along the coast that could alert them as to when the German planes were on their way in. Couldn't see individual planes, but it knew there were a flock of them. But for radar to fulfill its promise, it had to go up in frequency. And nobody had a gadget, a transmitting tube that could transmit power at those high frequencies. So they've invented this new gadget that allows them to get increased amounts of detail on their radar and pick up individual objects. If I was to ask you, how much did this improve the radar of the time? Is this by a magnitude of 10, a magnitude of 20, a magnitude of 100? How much are we talking about in terms of the high definition of radar? We're talking about a magnitude of hundreds or thousands. Wow. The radar of the day was, say, in meters, 10-meter wavelengths. 50-meter wavelengths. With the microwave radar, they're talking about 10-centimeter wavelengths, 3-centimeter wavelengths they got down to by later in the war. For example, the only transmitting tube they had that the world knew of at that time when those two Brits, Randall and Boot, invented this new device, small he held it in the palm of a man's hand. Before that, at the time, there was a transmitting tube that could transmit high frequencies. It was called the Kleistron, had been invented by the Varian brothers on the West Coast. And that was the only thing available. The problem was that that tube could only produce 20 watts of power at those frequencies, which was not enough to really bang a radio wave out there at distance so you could see things at distance. Yeah, you could see things across the road or in the middle of a city, but it was not useful for tactical purposes. The two British individuals who invented the resonant cavity magnetron, I know that's a mouthful, this little <laughs> gadget I'm talking about, resonant cavity magnetron, the first time they ever tested it, remember, 20 watts from the Kleistron, First time they ever tested it, they produced 30,000, 30,000 watts of power at that frequency. I mean, that was huge. And nobody in the world knew about it except Britain and then the U.S. when they divulged it, which came here to show it to us. And people at MIT had been doing that work, high-frequency work, but they could never make a useful, a tactically useful radar until they had this new gadget. Let's look at that for a minute. It's 20 watts of power. Think of a 20 watt light bulb. Then think of three carbon arc searchlights 
That was the difference in the intensity, in the power, in the capability. That is astonishing, Norm. So try and explain to us what impact that has on the war. Well, it had a huge impact. In fact, in this country, which is one of the reasons you divulged it to us, we produced, manufactured more than a million resonant cavity magnetrons. Raytheon alone probably built a million of them. Many, many uses. It was used, for example, the Navy, the Army, in fire direction, artillery fire direction. Big naval guns or, or artillery guns for the infantry. They could see tanks, trucks coming up toward the lines, and they could direct artillery automatically using the radar, that radar, to destroy them, to break that up. On the ships, they used it, obviously, to could see ships at night, could see ships in bad weather, could see friendly ships and enemy ships at great distances. Individual ships could direct fire at them. That was a, a big use. But to me, there were two huge obstacles to D-Day. One were the U-boats, and the other was the weather, the European weather. Go for it. Tell us about the U-boats. The U-boats were wreaking havoc on shipping to Britain, the island nation. Needed open shipping lanes, of course, to survive. They were at war, short of everything, food, military equipment, ammunition, weapons, everything necessary for their survival. Many U.S. governments and military leaders were convinced that Britain would fall. Hitler's plan, of course, was to invade England initially in September of 1940, after he had swept over Europe, and you started massing troops in northern France. Karl Dernitz was commander of the U-boat fleet, and he boasted that he could win the war with the U-boats alone. His goal was to sink 700,000 tons of shipping every month, more than the Allies could replace. In the first six months of 1942 alone, U-boats sank 585 ships over 3 million gross tons, an average of two ships every day. And at the time, there probably weren't more than 35 U-boats in combat at any one time. Dernitz wanted 100, but he didn't have them. There were months when the U-boats were sinking this huge tonnage in the shipping lanes without the loss of a single U-boat. I'm talking about an efficient weapon. So how to locate and destroy them was a problem. Uh, let's consider for a moment, if the U-boats had won, had brought Britain to the bargaining table, the bargaining table with Hitler, from where would any kind of invasion ever have been launched? I mean, the entire continent of Europe was in their hands or neutral. So how to locate and destroy them was the problem. And the radar scientists hastily designed and built what they called ASV radars, anti-surface vessel radars, which British Coastal Command and later U.S. planes, B-24s installed in their search planes. And this new ASV radar could even see a submarine conning tower in the immensity of the ocean from, say, 20 miles. Nothing could do that. Previous radar probably couldn't even detect a single U-boat at 20 miles on the surface of the water, never mind a conning tower, or even a periscope. So the U-boats powered their storage batteries. They were powered by storage batteries when they were submerged, but they needed to surface 
under the cover of darkness at night to recharge those batteries with their diesel engines. And that's, of course, when they were most vulnerable. Suddenly, at night, a U-boat would find itself bathed in light from above, and the bombs and the, and the depth charges would fall. Dernitz wondered if the Allies might have a new type of radar. He couldn't figure out what was going on, but his, and he went to a scientist and asked them, and they assured him that radar couldn't possibly do that. That was the radar that they knew. Microwave radar, location and destruction, eventually pushed the U-boats from the shipping lanes, and Britain survived the Battle of the Atlantic, as we know, but it was touch and go for a while. Do we know the extent to which they were able to degrade the U-boat threat from this? Do we know percentage-wise how much they were able to destroy? From what I've read, at the end of the war, I mean, 70% of those men were gone that, that fought those battles. They were gone. That service lost more than any other service, I would think. And so if that threat hadn't have been cleared in the North Atlantic, then you wouldn't have been able to get the troops over from the United States to the UK. You wouldn't have been able to start preparing for D-Day. You wouldn't have been able to bring the transport over, the weaponry over, the supplies, the food, and you wouldn't have been able to do that massive preponderance of force all at once over the channel. Exactly right. So that was a huge obstacle, obviously, to the war and to to D-Day which was deemed absolutely necessary. It had to be one on the ground with troops on the ground. So that sort of brings us to the second obstacle. Hi, I'm Susanna Lipscomb, and in my new podcast, Not Just the Tudors, I'll be talking about everything from Aztecs to witches, Belethgeth to Shakespeare, Mughal India to the Mayflower. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
Yes, so tell us about this second obstacle that the resonant cavity magnetron helped us overcome. The weather, the miserable, storming, overcast weather in Europe, especially during the winter, the late fall months, early spring months. The strategy, U.S. strategy anyways, for getting to Europe, for winning the war was to strategically bomb. And this is where the Americans and British parted company a bit. The Americans wanted to be strategically accurate in their bombing. They were very concerned with, with civilian casualties. The British had suffered their own civilian casualties and probably were not quite so sensitive as the Americans on that regard. And they, to protect themselves, they bombed at night and they suggested that the U.S. do the same. And they bombed as best they could in the dark, but I don't think they were quite as concerned as the U.S. strategy called for. The U.S. had this Norden bomb site, which was like a religion with the Air Force. Norden convinced the Air Force that they could put a bomb in a pickle barrel from 20,000 feet high, and they never wanted to deviate from the use of the Norden. But the problem was, with the weather, with the awful weather, they were recalling 70 to 80% of all planned missions were recalled because of the weather, because they couldn't see the targets. They were getting into the air and completing missions. This is the U.S. 8th Air Force, seven days a month, which wasn't enough. Let's look at date, January 1, 1944. After four years of bombing by the British, nearly two years of bombing by the U.S. 8th Air Force from bases in Britain, Germany's war-making infrastructure through manufacturing plants, railroad yards, air force, it was still operating. The Allies were insisting on staging D-Day that summer, but the preconditions had not yet been met. Eisenhower was not about to put all those men on the beaches and the machines and the equipment with the German air force still a potent threat. So here we are basically five, six months away from the summer when D-Day would happen, have to happen. And there were restrictions on when it could happen. Had to be a moonlit night, had to be an incoming tide. So to help the men slog their way in with all the equipment they're carrying from the landing ships. So there were just certain date, dates that it would work. June 5th was chosen. And that's when they absolutely wanted to get there. But on January 1, 1944, those preconditions had not yet been met yet. Six months later, on June 6, 1944, on the day the Allies put over 150,000 men on the Normandy beaches, there was scarcely a German plane in the sky to oppose them. Of the relatively few German planes that were still airworthy, there was no fuel to run them, no spare parts to repair them, and few experienced pilots to fly them. Most of those men had been shot down. So considering the earlier years of bombing by the RAF and the United States Army Air Force and not getting the job done that needed to be done, how was it finally accomplished in just five months? It was microwave radar made possible by the resonant cavity magnetron. It was introduced into the U.S. Eighth Air Force early in 44. They completely changed their bombing protocols and it solved a huge obstacle to the bombing campaign, that weather, because they could bomb through the overcast. Not as accurately, but they could wreak 
havoc themselves. That so. is amazing. So not only did this technology help rid the waters of the U-boat threat, a menace throughout the war, but they also were able to destroy the war making capacity and also the air power capacity of the Luftwaffe so that when it came down to D-Day, the troops had, well, as best chance as they possibly could to get over onto those beaches inland without having hell rain down on them. Right. I mean, you have imagine if the Air Force, if the Luftwaffe was still a potent force. I mean, they had enough problems, God knows, as we know, but imagine what it could have been. And of course, there was some air power capacity on the day. There was some more locally based planes as well. I mean, when I was going through the files, there were even things like cluster bombs dropped on the troops from D-Day plus one, plus two, plus three, plus four, but nothing compared to what could have been. Right, right. Obviously, um, they were throwing whatever they had at them and the Nazi war machine, but they didn't have what they had had just six months before. Wow. I mean, as we come up to D-Day, it really is quite a considerable thing to think about, isn't it? If this technology hadn't come through, if there hadn't been that intelligence sharing between the Brits and the Americans, well, I dread to think what would have happened. Did these two men who took this technology over to the US, did they get the credit they deserved? Well, I don't know. And they didn't take it over. Those two men were still in Britain. I don't even think they invented it for radar. They probably, they, I think they were working mainly in communications. Oh, and they wow. and they weren't communications experts. They knew, didn't know a whole lot about it. They knew they had to, they were asked to design something that could transmit power at these high microwave frequencies. And because they didn't know much about communications, it wasn't their specialty of transmitting radio waves. They weren't encumbered by previous notions and fixed ideas that maybe someone else might have been. So they just brought a totally new concept to the problem and they solved it. The reading I did convinced me resonant cavity magnetron was the single, the most influential new invention in the winning of the war. And I know that's a huge statement to make, but and when you sort of talk about new inventions, I mean, the atomic bomb, yes, that was an earth-shaking invention, literally, but it didn't win the war. I mean, the war was already won when they dropped those two bombs on Japan, but it ended the war abruptly. And in so doing, it saved thousands and thousands of Allied lives from having to invade the Japanese mainland. And the other things you think about that was a great, great accomplishment was breaking Germany's Enigma code. But I don't consider that an invention. That was a brilliant mathematical achievement, but it was not what I would call an invention. So I'm not alone in believing this. I mean, there's some scientists that wrote about this shortly after the war, that that was the most precious cargo that when they brought that resonant cavity magnetron here, the most precious cargo ever brought to our shores. Well, thank you for bringing it to light and also placing it within the broader context of the war at sea and the war in the air as well. I think you show how it fits in very neatly with a combined multi-layered offensive. I've got to, I've got to ask though, so this may interest you. Now, I wrote my PhD on the history of American precision bombing doctrine. Really? Yes. Huh. yes. And it's coming out next year as a book with Manchester University Press called Precision, A History of American Warfare. And I follow the strategic ambition 
for precision from 1917 and people like Colonel Edgar S. Gorell and a bit of Billy Mitchell and all of that through the interwar periods, through the Second World War and into the Cold War. And my original contribution, because you've had people like Tammy Davis Biddle, who have done rhetoric and reality, Stephen McFarlane, The Pursuit of Prison Bo Precision Bombing. You know, you've had quite a few books on the precision bombing strategic element during that period. But I argue how it continues into the Cold War period with those very same people that pushed it during the Second World War. And no one, I don't think, has written about precision in the Cold War, because why would you talk about precision when you're talking about nuclear bombs? But what we don't realise is it's so many of the same people who are pushing this sort of technology and strategy forwards. And then I bring it through to kind of drone warfare today as well. One thing I wanted to ask you is to what extent then was this technology, this radar technology, more accurate than the Norden bomb site, or was it less accurate than daylight precision bombing? The radar bombing, and this is why they were reluctant to go to it, the leaders, Allied leaders, it was not as accurate as the Norden bomb site. The Norden bomb site was very accurate. If you were testing it in the desert of Utah or New Mexico, and there was no wind, and it was a bright sunny day, and yeah, they could come close to hitting a pickle barrel, putting a bomb in a pickle barrel. But in combat, as you know, it's it just doesn't work out that way, especially when the planes are in formation and spread out and you've got winds to deal with and you've got miserable weather to deal with. You know, it, it wasn't as accurate as the Norden bombsite, but getting into the air so many more days of the month, keeping the enemy busy keeping their hospitals filled, their ambulances running, keeping them firefighters working to put out blazes and really causing such severe shortages in Nazi Germany had to have been horrible. I've had some of the Cold War, the later battles, I've had letters from guys who flew, fellows who were very radar savvy, who actually worked with radar, used it for gun directing during the Cold War and for reconnaissance and for battle in Vietnam using radar for bombing. I got some great letters from guys like that that hadn't really known the whole story of how it was introduced and why it was introduced in World War II. That is fascinating. Thank you so much, Norm, for bringing that story to us. You've got to tell us, where can people read more about this history? Well, you can read my whole story. I wrote it for the average reader, not for a technically oriented reader. I mean, it has been written for them. Some of these people know what I'm talking, what I've been telling you. But for some reason, and I waited long enough to write the book, but I couldn't believe that it had never been written for a general readership. My book is titled Blind Bombing, How Microwave Radar Brought the Allies to D-Day and Victory in World War II. It's available at bookshops. It's available online with the online booksellers like Amazon. It was released in December of 2019. Last year, 2020, it won the silver medal in world history in the Independent Publishers Book Awards here in this country. And it's had some wonderful reviews, Kirkus and some of the others. Amazing. Thank you so much, Norm. I actually can't wait to read it. This is so my area of interest. Thank you for coming on the Warfare Podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me, James. It was really an experience. Great fun. Thanks, Norm.
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.